0: Welcome to As I See It. I am Keith DeGreen. Today, our broad topic is democratic capitalism, profit or plunder. Now, in this episode, I hope to pull together some of the comments I've made in previous episodes to sort of tie a ribbon around for now, our well-supported and I hope thoughtful defense of democratic capitalism. Well, let's start by talking about those greedy bastards. You know, these days, the prevailing progressive view is that American democracy is hopelessly flawed. For example, they say, the deep anger of millions of Americans about the direction of our country, Americans like you and I, is proof that American democracy is not working and that there's a real risk. The nation will surrender the populist, translation totalitarian, Ravings of good, God forbid, Donald Trump or other suspicious MAGA types. Meanwhile, the prevailing view among the liberal elite, so often taught in schools these days, is that the history of capitalism is nothing more than the history of abuse and exploitation, that it is so replete with abuses that our economic system, capitalism, must be treated with the utmost suspicion and contempt. Why they say those dirty capitalists are just a bunch of greedy bastards that want to exploit blacks and women and transsexuals and your grandma and your dog, especially if your dog is a transsexual. Now, all these alleged shortcomings, of course, are proof in the minds of the liberal elite that we'd all be a lot better off if, well, if things were a bit more closely controlled by enlightened progressives. That would solve everything, wouldn't it? You betcha. Power to the people. Well, power to certain people anyway. So their bottom line is that democratic capitalism is no better and maybe worse than other demonstrably inferior political and economic systems around the world. Now, I hate to confuse a well-oiled set of biases with the facts, but that's exactly what we are going to do here today. You betcha. The recurring theme of America's progressive pseudo intelligentsia is that America's system of democratic capitalism is nothing special. A system that deserves only moral parity with other competing systems. Just another system, no better and perhaps worse than the rest. So today, I'll make the case that democratic capitalism not only works, but works exceptionally well, and that it not only continues to enrich millions of people here in the U.S., but also billions of people around the globe. Of course, progressive spin doctors point to virtually any period of American history as proof that we are a flawed society, and they usually get it wrong. So today... In response to their revisionist history, we'll begin by discussing today's documented attempts to monopolize thought and speech by big tech, by the media, and by our own government. Next, we'll discuss a period of American history known as the Gilded Age, that period of American history from about 1870 to around 1900 because today's progressives use it as an example of how under capitalism, the rich then, as now, they claim, got richer at everyone else's expense. They're wrong, and we'll prove it. We'll also discuss America's original sin, slavery, because again, the left claims that our experience with that horrible institution discredits our entire system. And finally, we'll address just two of the serious threats faced by American democratic capitalism today. The cynical, progressive, socialist agenda regarding our southern border and their weaponization of climate science. Let's first talk about the monopolization of ideas. You know, as he left office, President Eisenhower warned of a military-industrial complex. Today, we face a Washington media-big-tech complex that routinely threatens our freedoms. As Americans, most of us tend to be troubled not as much by big tech's profits, but by its ability, indeed its desire, to suppress dissenting views in cooperation with the media, our own government as well. As an aside, let me offer this advice to our big tech government media censors. Look, if you actually want to defeat a bad idea, let it see the light of day. Instead of it being whispered from the shadows, let it be shouted from the rooftops. Let all passionate but nonviolent ideas compete in the ultimate marketplace, the marketplace of people's minds. Great concepts will rise to the top, foolish ideas we'll sink to the bottom. When you center dissenting views, oh, you know, like those crazy ideas such as, say, the allegation from those right-wing extremists that the 2016 Russia hoax was not about Trump conspiring with Russia, but about Hillary Clinton, the Democrats and our own government deflecting attention from the classified server Hillary kept in her closet. Crazy, huh? Or the really stupid idea that, yeah, maybe COVID did originate in a Wuhan lab. Or, one more, the ridiculous assertion that the government and Twitter colluded to exclude Donald Trump and his supporters from that app. Well, you get the idea. Let ideas get out there. Good ones will rise to the top. The bad ones will sink. But let them compete. Anyway, here's the most important point. When you center dissenting views, you're not judging the idea you censor. No, you are judging the people who may see or hear that idea. You are expressing your contempt for those people, contempt for the ability of Americans to sort through the noise and make their own decisions. In short, you are showing your contempt for an essential cornerstone of our democracy the common sense of the American people. Now let's take a look at one period of American history, just as an example, the so-called Gilded Age from around 1870 until around 1900. Now there's no doubt that many of the great industrialists and financiers of the day, the so-called robber barons, such as J.P. Morgan, Vanderbilt, Gould, Carnegie and others, pulled off breathtaking acts of market manipulation and political influence, many of which were entirely legal at the time, and some of which weren't. Incidentally, one quick sidebar story. There's also no doubt that it was a particularly profitable time to be an elected official, especially if you worked in, say, Albany, New York. There, legislators would sometimes vote against, say, the proposed project of a specific railroad, but only after they sold its stocks short. Then, after their vote to deny the project, the railroad stock would sink. Those same legislators would then collect their short-selling profits and run to the stock exchange and repurchase the railroad stock at a deep discount. Then, guess what? They would return to the legislature and vote to approve that same railroad's proposed project, which would, of course, cause its stock to skyrocket in value. (laughs) Nice, Nice work if you can find it. So, absolutely, there were abuses during the so called Gilded Age, not only by robber barons. There were also certainly labor abuses that ranged from violence against striking workers to dangerous working conditions. As an aside, ethical lapses are certainly alive and well in our modern age. It was back in 1988, for example, when I ran for the United States Senate as Arizona's Republican candidate. My opponent was an incumbent who sat on the committee that determined the path of the largest public works irrigation project ever, the Arizona Canal. Well, after he determined the path while sitting on the Committee, the path of the canal. Guess what? He used a partnership to buy up land in the path of the canal. After buying the land, his partnership then flipped it to the government at an inflated price. Again, nice work if you can, if you can get it, huh? Unfortunately, we did not get the details out in time to save my ill-fated campaign. Or perhaps you'd like to start an international foundation and call it, oh, I don't know, the Clinton Foundation. While you are a former president and your wife is currently secretary of state, you then go around the world collecting massive speaking fees and donations from governments to your foundation, all perfectly legal. Or, hey, who knows, maybe your dad is, say, I don't know, the vice president of the United States. Suddenly, in the eyes of shady companies and governments, you become such an expert on everything that they pay you millions of dollars for your expertise? Absolutely inspired, isn't it? But back to those robber barons. As I'll demonstrate in a moment, the Gilded Age was, in fact, a time of tremendous advances in incomes and standards of living across a broad spectrum of America. Despite the progressive narrative, it was definitely not just about a few people making fortunes while everyone else suffered. So before I make the point that abuses prevalent in the Gilded Age and other abuses have been remedied through democratic capitalism, and again acknowledging that there is still plenty of work to be done, I'd like to help set the historical record straight about that period. Now here I draw heavily from an excellent opinion piece recently published in the Wall Street Journal, and it was written by some people I really respect, Phil Graham and Amity Shells. Now, Ms. Shales well, uh, Schles, I believe, I'm mispronouncing her name and I pre- I apologize, S-H-L-A-E-S. Uh, Miss Schles is the author of The Great Society and The Forgotten Man. Mr. Graham is no slouch either. He's a respected economist, and a former chairman of the United States Senate Banking Committee. Senator Graham is also co-author of a great book called The Myth of American Inequality. Now, I've mentioned that book in prior podcasts, and I do recommend it. Remember, and this is important, alleged income inequality, industrial and labor abuse, and all sorts of other real or imagined injustices comprise the sand upon which the progressive socialist church is built. It is their claim that today, as during the late 1800s, the rich get richer and the poor get poor. But here's what Senator Graham and Ms. Schles had to say about what the impact of the robber barons really was during the so-called golden Age. In fact, they wrote, and this is interesting, between 1870 and 1900, America's inflation-adjusted gross national product expanded by an unprecedented 233%. Though the population nearly doubled, real per capita GNP, gross national product, surged by 90%. Real wages of non-farm employees grew by 53%. And life's staples, such as food, clothing, and shelter, became much more plentiful and much cheaper. Food prices plummeted by 174%, and the cost of textiles, fuel, and home furnishings fell by 70%, 65%, and 70% respectively. The illiteracy rate fell by 46%, and life expectancy rose by 12.5%. Infant mortality declined by 17%. As American capitalism blossomed, some got rich, for sure. In 1892, there were 4,050 millionaires with less than 20% having inherited their wealth. The rest created their wealth and in the process, reduced poverty, expanded general uh, societal prosperity and made it possible for millions of immigrants looking for opportunity and freedom to find both. That mattered little to progressives who were so obsessed by the 4,050 millionaires back then that they turned a blind eye to the 66 million Americans whose economic well-being improved faster than any people who had ever lived on Earth ever. Had the golden Age suffered from monopolistic exploitation, the authors tell us, as critics claim, output would have fallen and prices would have risen in the monopolized industries. But... In a 1985 study, there's an economist by the name of Thomas DiLorenzo. He tested that hypothesis for steel, petroleum, railroads, and other industries accused of being monopolistic. That's easy for me to say monopolistic during the debate on the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. What he found is that output in those industries actually increased by an average of 175 percent from 1880 to 1890, seven times the growth rate of real GNP, on average, prices in the ostensibly monopolized industries fell three times as fast as the consumer price index. So this myth of the Gilded Age in turn produced progressive era regulations that proved to be an impediment to competition as regulation became an instrument of cartelization producing higher prices, poorer services, and less innovation. Get this. In fact, by the 1970s, the negative effect of these regulations was so obvious that even liberal Senator Ted Kennedy and liberal President Jimmy Carter led the deregulation of airlines, trucking, railroads, energy, and communications. The benefits of overturning excess progressive air regulations included more competition, greater efficiency, more innovation, stronger growth, setting the foundations of contemporary American competitiveness and prosperity. But, the authors continued, proving that no bad idea ever dies, progressivism has been reborn with outcries against billionaires, and the tech industry as the new monopolistic trust that must be busted and regulated. Robert Reich, who served as President Clinton's labor secretary, has opined that, and I quote him, like the robber barons of the first Gilded Age, those of the second, the tech giants, have amassed fortunes because of their monopolies. Yet on both claims, The case for 21st century progressivism is even weaker than it was during the Gilded Age, spewing envy at the Fortune 400 billionaires who, get this, these Fortune 400 billionaires, who their combined after-tax income would not have funded federal, state, and local governments in 2020 for even one week. Progressives denounce such people as Bill Gates, who has created hundreds of thousands of jobs and enriched the lives of billions. Today, our retirement funds own far more of Microsoft that he founded than he does. Yeah, I'll admit the guy's a little wacky, but he changed the world for the better. Meanwhile, notwithstanding their attempted monopoly on thought and speech, today's tech production and prices show no signs of the modern tech industry being monopolized. In fact, many of their products are free and the cost of search and text advertising that underwrites much of their revenues has fallen by more than 50% in the last decade. Progressive regulation for 80 years stifled competition, lowered efficiency and drove up prices. Now, Senator Graham and Ms. Schles ask, is this an experiment we wanna repeat? They continued in their editorial, today's progressive rant that income inequality is an an existential threat is both unpersuasive and untrue. If we counted all transfer payments, such as food stamps and refundable tax credits as income to their recipients and taxes paid as income lost to taxpayers, something the U.S. Census Bureau doesn't do, We'd find that income inequality is lower today than it was in 1947. And I'll hearken you back again to that book that Senator Graham and two of his colleagues wrote called The Myth of uh, American Inequality. A lot more detail on this issue in that book. Now, at its root, progressivism is based on a myth and fueled by envy, the same caustic fort that has destroyed posterity and endangered freedom from the time of the ancient Greeks. So wrote Michelez and Senator Graham. Good for them. Now, I return to my earlier statement. I'm not nearly as concerned with how much money tech companies and their founders make, God bless them, this is America, as I am concerned with their attempted monopoly on thought. That must be fought. But like so many abuses before, since, and to come, Tech's attempts at thought monopoly, I'm confident, will be overcome, as so many other abuses have been overcome through the democratic process. Overcome by reforms that help ensure our freedom and our right to order liberty. Consider, since the days of those so-called robber barons, America has enacted and redefined, just for example, meaningful antitrust laws, meaningful investor protection laws, the creation of our social security system, tax-deferred retirement plans, minimum wage and minimum age standards, occupational safety and health standards, product and food safety standards, equal employment legislation, and much, much more. Bill our detractors also claim that America is a hoax because it was born of an original sin, slavery. But when they met in Philadelphia, our founding fathers knew that the question before them was not whether slavery would endure a while longer across the southern states. Many of them expressed the hope that the institution would die naturally because it was both cruel and inefficient. The question for our founders was not about whether some states allowed slavery. The question was whether we would have a United States at all. Here is the key. The miracle of America is not that our more perfect union was created by perfect men. No. The miracle of America is that our more perfect union was created by highly imperfect men men who through our founding documents nevertheless laid the foundation for the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment that gave citizenship to all people born in the United States if they were subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, the 15th Amendment that gave black Americans the right to vote, and oh, incidentally, the 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote, incidentally, regarding the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments Those amendments were enacted during the Civil War while nearly 180,000 freed black men distinguished themselves on the battlefield for the Union. Of the more than 320,000 Union troops who died in the Civil War, about 40,000 of them were black. The rest were white, fighting for the end of slavery. But those amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments passed during the Civil War, were vehemently and sometimes violently opposed by the few Democrats who had not left Congress to join the Confederacy. We have the Republican supermajorities of the 37th and 38th Congresses to thank for those amendments, and especially three of their congressional leaders, fellows whose names you might not know, but ought to learn. Thaddeus Stevens, William Pitt Fezenden—that's F that's F-E-S-E-N-D-E-N, and Ben Wade. There's a great book on what those men went through to pass those amendments. The book is Congress at War by Fergus Bordewich, and I recommend it. It's Congress at War by Fergus Bordewich. Yes, it took too many years for us to enforce those guarantees. Jim Crow laws enacted after the Civil War by Southern Democrats deprived black Americans of the enjoyment of their rights for far too many years. But finally, President Truman ordered the integration of the military in 1948. Then in 1954, the Supreme Court eliminated the doctrine of separate but equal in education. Finally, Congress passed a series of civil rights laws in the 1960s, nearly 100 years after the passage of those amendments. Yes, democracy can be painfully slow, but it does work. Democratic capitalism ensures that it works. It ensures that we have the resources to make it work. But you guessed it. The progressive socialist crowd continues trying to convince black, brown, and other Americans that they are and remain victims of an inherently unfair system. And, you know, those folks are often victims of a particularly unfair educational system. A particularly unfair educational system, promoted and protected by progressive Democrats and the unions that own them. In my opinion, this is the greatest civil rights issue of our age. And its solution is school choice. Now, I've addressed this critical issue on prior podcasts, and no doubt we will do so again. So... Is American democratic capitalism about production or about plunder? I hope we've demonstrated what you already knew, that the United States of America is the most productive nation on earth precisely because we embrace and must protect democratic capitalism. Unfortunately, as since its founding, our incredible system of democratic capitalism remains under assault. Not just from foreign adversaries, but from within as well. Some people mean well, other people are very malicious in their intent regarding the existence of our country. Let's take just two examples of serious internal threats that we face. First, there's the border. First, who really has the moral high ground when it comes to our southern border? Now, in a previous podcast, I addressed what I call the south side of this issue, the economics of remittances and the pathetic job so many Latin American countries do to provide democratic capitalism for their own people. If you haven't already, I invite you to join me for that podcast as well at DeGreen.com. But now I want to focus on a profound human tragedy that continues to unfold due to our open border. You know, this is so important and so tragic. Liberals claim the moral high ground on this issue by saying, oh, watch those poor migrants making the hazardous trip to the U.S. to have a better life. How can we possibly turn them away? Where's our compassion, they ask? Well, here is our compassion with the 100,000 Americans who died last year and the 120,000 Americans who will die this year alone from the horrible drugs that are flowing across our southern border. In fact, the left's position in favor of a porous border is not compassion at all. It reflects the absolute lowest form of morality, literally trading American lives for future votes. What the liberals are really saying is this. We can't get enough actual U.S. citizens to vote for our policies, so we'll just import millions of new voters, give them tons of benefits paid for by you, and then undermine the integrity of our electoral system so that those people can vote in U.S. elections for us. Folks, watch the videos of those, that flood of humanity across our border. By and large, they are young, strong, healthy people. Very few of them are carrying drugs, and we are not accusing them of being drug dealers. But, but, the drugs pour in alongside those people across our open border, brought here by genuine, often vicious, cartel criminals. Criminals and drugs that take American lives. More statistics. 14,000 pounds of fentanyl were seized at the border this past fiscal year. And this is just the quantity that we intercepted. Deadly illegal drugs are pouring across our border. According to the Drug Enforcement Administration, two milligrams of fentanyl is a lethal dose in most people. That works out to 227,000 potential deaths per pound of fentanyl. What does this mean to America? what does this mean to your family and your friends? Let me put it in perspective. Like some of you, I served in Vietnam. I was with the Marines. You know, the U.S. had troops in that country for 20 years. 58,000 Americans died during the Vietnam War. 58,000 over 20 years. Terrible. But last year alone, more than 100,000 Americans, mostly young people, died from drug overdoses right here in the United States, mainly from drugs laced with deadly synthetic fentanyl and other deadly synthetic substances. Again, this year, we expect to lose 120,000 young Americans to illegal drugs that pour mainly across our southern border. Yes, in 2023 alone, we will lose twice as many Americans to illegal drugs from our porous border than died during the entire Vietnam War. Incidentally, that is about three times the number of Americans who died in the Korean War. Now, we all remember the Vietnam War protests. Let me ask you, where are the protests from the left over these drug deaths today? Where are the protests against the flood of illegal drugs and violent criminals pouring across our border? Where is the outrage at the American lives lost here at home every day? And what possible motivation could the administration and the liberal elite have to allow this travesty? Incredibly, their motive is obvious to win future elections as they find more ways to allow illegals to vote here in the U.S. The Democrats' failure to protect every lawful vote, their push to expand ballot access to everyone, including non-citizens in some jurisdictions, is not about civil rights. It is about trading American lives for political power. Is that the moral high ground? How utterly cynical must you be to sacrifice more than 100,000 Americans every year upon the altar of your political ambitions? How absolutely unspeakably horrible. Oh, I know. The true cynic will argue that drug users are complicit in their own demise. But we know that most fentanyl fatalities occur among young people. Now, here's a news bulletin. Young people do dumb things. It's sort of their job. Oh, hey dude, this is the really good stuff, cool. That is why it is our job. Even as we try to hammer some common sense into our kids, not just as Republicans or Democrats, but as Americans and as parents and grandparents to hold liberals and President Biden and their elite friends Personally accountable for failing to protect our border, for failing to protect our young people, and for so cynically trading American lives for future votes. Their body count continues to climb. That's why we must shout from the rooftops. We will never, never trade the lives of our children for votes. And that, my friends, is the moral high ground. Now there's another threat that threatens the fabric of democratic capitalism. In fact, it smacks of these special interest excesses that progressives claim they hate. It is a threat that has weaponized and misrepresented a legitimate but very complex science for the purpose of promoting a political agenda that is unrelated to the science itself. It is a threat that sees our own government Create massive winners and losers in our economy in pursuit of an unproven causal relationship, a pursuit that commands each of us to become increasingly dependent on government regulated power supplies and government mandated behavior. I speak, of course, of the weaponization of climate change. So let's tack- tackle the issue of climate change. Now raise your hand if you want to ruin our planet. Hmm. I doubt too many people will have their hands up. I certainly don't. You know, back in 2007, during my first failed retirement, after I sold my first company, I bought a boat. It was a beautiful Nordhaven 55-foot full-displacement trawler yacht. Incidentally, the convention is that boats over 50 feet are supposed to be called either ships or yachts. Anyway, with a small crew, I piloted that boat that yacht, across the Pacific Ocean as far as Thailand. We even broadcast a weekly radio show from the middle of the ocean. It was a blast. Now, I had hoped to take her around the world, but by the time we got to Bangkok, we were so far behind schedule and so over budget that I doubled back to Hong Kong and with the help of the good people at Nordhaven, sold the boat there to a nice family. Anyway, uh, let me tell you, A 55-foot full-displacement trawler may look very impressive when it's sitting at the dock, but put it out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and it is an ant on an elephant's behind. Out there, alone, away from the works of man, I witnessed the absolute power and majesty of pure nature. And yet, yes, it was not always pleasant, for sure. Sometimes it was downright scary. And as we approached the coast of, for example, the Philippines, I was sickened by the sight of man-made debris, junk, floating out as far as 50 miles from shore. Along the Chinese coast and Vietnamese coast, it was just as bad. Yes, we are making a mess of the place. And yes, we need to clean up our act. But to allege that our pathetic human activities have the outsized consequence that the climate Crazy's claim is just nonsense. It's not just me that's talking. Courageous, eminent scientists are also finally speaking out. In 2021 alone, the U.S. spent a record $755 billion on clean energy. And now, with the incredibly misnamed Inflation Reduction Act that the Democrats passed before they lost the House in 2022, Trillions more will be funneled to favored companies and industries. Consultancy firm McKinsey says total global spending by governments, businesses, and individuals on energy and land use systems will need to rise by an additional $3.5 trillion to $9.2 trillion per year, every year, if we are to have any chance of getting to net zero carbon emissions By 2050. That is a massive increase on today's level of investment and is equivalent to half of global corporate profits, a quarter of world tax revenues, and 7% of household spending. The report also states, and I quote, the net zero transition will amount to a massive economic transformation, you think? Yet there's no discernible evidence that the specific expenditures currently being made will have a significant impact on carbon emissions. There's no discernible evidence. But they sure are making a lot of people rich at your expense, of course. In fact, some scientists speculate that planting a few billion trees, for example, could have the same effect, even a greater effect, of reducing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than many of the expensive and mandatory lifestyle changes we're now being compelled to make. You know, a recent study published published in the journal Science found that Earth's ecosystems could support 2.2 billion acres of forests, 25% more forested area than we have now, by planting more than a half trillion trees. The authors say we could capture about 205 gigatons of carbon Now, a gigaton is a billion metric tons. That would reduce atmospheric carbon by about 25%, and that's enough to negate about 20 years of human-produced carbon emissions at the current rate, or about half of all carbon emitted by humans since 1960. Now, that would buy the green energy industry time to develop much more efficient and cost-effective energy-saving technology. Oh, but God forbid we should embrace the simplest solution first. No. Instead, the climate crazies in power have taken matters to the point of absurdity. For example, California is prohibiting installation of gas stoves in new homes. Instead, your cooking will depend on the reliability of the notoriously unreliable and expensive California power grid. Now, there's a case to be made against the indoor use of gas, especially in very small Uh, environments, especially in environments up in the northeast, let's say, or across our northern uh, plains, where during the winter, all the windows and doors are closed. But it's not a very strong case to be made at all. And it certainly doesn't justify these kinds of draconian measures being uh, employed now in California. This is just nonsense. Look, none of us want to harm our wonderful planet. But I'll say it out loud. The left has inflated legitimate climate concerns to advance a socialist model of governance where, once again, the well-connected will profit, while the political elite exert even more influence over our lives. Their manipulation of data across major institutions and their suppression of responsible, dissenting views, if not lawfully criminal, at the very least, it is morally criminal. Here's what we know is happening. An entire generation has now been indoctrinated, not educated, indoctrinated, and now they incorrectly believe that a climate Armageddon is inevitable unless mankind relinquishes individual freedom to the dictates of the state, a state claiming that only its edicts and our compliance can save the planet. Their tool? Climate models intended not to inform, but to persuade. Now, for years, there have been detailed climate models that attempt to measure the impact of various social, economic, and political systems on the planet. That's fair enough. Not surprisingly, the model most supported by most so-called climate science institutions is a socialist model that favors wealth equality among nations at the expense of the two hallmarks of capitalism, individual initiative and reward. Many previously reputable national and international science organizations have been co-opted by people who selectively use, present, or even invent data to promote their political agenda. There's another wonderful and recent book out, uh, out there, and it's called Unsettled. That's the name of the book, Unsettled. It's written by a world-class climate scientist, Dr. Stephen Koonin. Dr. Koonin was, among many other things, the Undersecretary of Science in the U.S. Department of Energy during the Obama administration. He has also chaired many international climate-related scientific projects. In his book called Unsettled, Dr. Koonin lays bare the statistical abuses and misrepresentations committed by even the world's most renowned scientific institutions. Dr. Koonin does not claim that we humans do not impact the environment. We certainly do. But he makes clear that the scientific community has abandoned its effort to objectively inform and instead uses selected and often false data to persuade, to support specific favored industries and a specific social agenda. You know, I've long said that there are three climate movements. There is the science of climate that presents facts and findings, engages in fact-based research and debate, and that acknowledges the limitations inherent in trying to incorporate the millions of variables involved with measuring climate. I support that that science. It's difficult work, but I support it. Second, though, there is the politics of climate. That presents, manipulates, and if necessary, invents facts to promote a political agenda. And third, there is the religion of climate that regards those who manipulate and misrepresent the data as high priests and that regards challenges to them as pure heresy. For example, did you know this is incredible to me that a few years ago, Chuck Schumer and a few other Democrats literally tried to make it unlawful to use government-funded studies to refute prevailing climate assumptions. I'm not kidding, seriously. Fortunately, their proposed legislation went nowhere. But how awful and frightening that they would seriously attempt to make scientific debate unlawful. Again, I encourage you to read Dr. Koonin's book, Unsettled. By all means, let's have the debate Let's find ways we can leave this planet a better and safer place. But let's demand that science serve the truth and not someone's political agenda. Well, have we made our case? Our topic today was democratic capitalism, production or plunder. Hmm. I hope we've demonstrated what we already knew That we are the most productive nation on earth precisely because we embrace and must protect democratic capitalism. Yes, the winner is democratic capitalism. Yes, democratic capitalism may be corrupted from time to time. It may shift too far toward corporate greed or toward mob rule, or perhaps as now toward both extremes simultaneously driven by big tech controlled social media. But the brilliance of our system is that, with the active involvement of the American people, we have met past challenges and will rise to meet current and future challenges because we have both the determination and the resources. I have said before that freedom is not an ideology. It is the natural condition of humankind. Democracy is the wind upon which freedom flies. Capitalism is the nourishment upon which freedom feeds. Together, with our help, they will take us, our children, and all future American generations to heights well beyond our dreams. Feel free to weigh in with your own comments at degreen.com. Thanks for joining me today. I am Keith DeGreen, and this is As I See It.